The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy spring. Do you realize that? Wednesday was the first day of spring. I think it's awesome. I already got my first sunburn of the season. <laughs> it comes easy after a, a Bortland winter, right? I spent about five minutes in the sun. Well, lo and behold, a little rosy cheeked. Um, so it's awesome. Um, so we've been in a series uh, called Renewal. And we've been talking about how we change the world by starting with ourselves, right? That, that great Gandhi quote, be the change you desire to see in the world. We think that's a good idea. And we don't want to be like the, the plumber, right, who spends all day, every day working on someone else's leaky pipes and then comes home and he's got all the leaky faucets that his wife asked him to fix that so he just doesn't have time for. We don't want to be that guy, we want to be people that, that start working on our own house, that deal with our own issues internally, in our hearts, with our relationship with God, and with one another. We want to be a healthy family so that from that place of transformation, we can go out and have an impact on the world. And so we, uh, we've been dealing with kind of the internal stuff um, and and looking at then these spiritual disciplines or these spiritual exercises. We started with the, the personal ones of, of rest and, and Sabbathing and, and prayer and meditation and taking that time away from all the distractions of our screens and our, our responsibilities of the day to get alone and be with God. And, and now we, we're moving into what we talk about and call the, the community disciplines, the community exercises. And we're in this culture, right, and we've been raised, especially in the Northwest, to be very independent-minded and, and do our own thing. And, and even in our, our church tradition, there's this kind of this stream of, like, God and me. And, and so we're fine talking about, yeah, my personal relationship with God, having have my personal quiet time. That's kind of, we talk about that. But we're not so good at doing community and doing relationship, and, and, and commitment, and accountability, and, and so last week we talked about the idea of church as a gym, right? Not just as the gym that we, we go to, right, alone, and we just go and put our headphones on and, and, and do our, our workouts, but, but more the, the uh, gymnasia of, of the Greek wor- world, which was like the formative place for, for young men, where there was education, that's where they got their liberal arts education. It's where they exercised and competed in sports. And it's where they, they socialized and bathed. And, and, and it was just a, a place of community and cultural formation. And we said that the church is the gym of the Christian life. It's where we learn those community exercises, where we get help together, getting in shape. And, and so we're taking our next step in that direction, talking about about friendship and vulnerability. <laughs> we like the idea of friendship. We have a hard time with this idea of vulnerability. But it's essential. The two things go hand in hand, don't they? 
to love someone, to be a friend, is to be vulnerable. And we're going to be in an interesting passage today, maybe a passage you, you haven't um, heard a sermon on before. It's Colossians 4, um, 7 through 18. You can, you can turn there as I kind of intro it, but it's basically like the greeting section of the book of Colossians. If you read the New Testament letters, right, he's, he's writing to, uh, Paul the Apostle's writing to different churches, and then he usually ends it by saying hi to so-and-so and hi to so-and-so and don't forget to bring my, my parchments, my books, and don't forget this. And, and he's like giving these little personal messages to people. And like the genealogies of the Old Testament, these are the parts that we usually skim, right? Because it's like reading someone else's mail. It's just, I don't know what the relevance is to me. Um, I, I can't even pronounce these names, let alone, it's just, it doesn't have anything to do with me. So... Think about it like this as we get into this passage. Do you remember back in the day when we used to buy DVDs? Anyone buy a DVD recently? Okay. So back in the day, right, if it was the band that you really liked, would you read the liner notes? We would, right? Like, we actually cared about what, who, who did they acknowledge? Who did they talk about? What are the, the Easter eggs that they hid in there? Or remember that old VH1 series, Behind the Music? where you would learn about your favorite band and the stories behind the songs. Or even, I mean, I guess today you can still download a movie uh, and, and there's special features, right? And you, and you watch the extras and you hear the director's commentary and you, and, and, and you see the interviews with the actors and you, and, and you follow, not the story, right? It doesn't tell you necessarily more about the movie or about the music or the album, but it tells you the story behind it. It tells you the story of the people behind the story, or for you bookworms like me, the acknowledgement section of a book, right? You usually don't read it unless you really care about the author, and you're like, oh, isn't that, that's cool, he thanks so-and-so, right? So this is the acknowledgement section. This is the the liner notes of the New Testament, and it's going to give us the personal side, the human side of, of Paul the Apostle and his relationships and I think there's a lot that we can learn about just how to be a friend to people. So uh, just listen along or read along. I'm going to read from Colossians 4. Um, forgive me if I don't know how to pronounce these names. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Arist or something, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. 
And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, all, all Scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for training in righteousness. God, we want to be trained. We want to put in the hard work of developing new transformative habits that change our, our loves and our wants and our desires. And we want to do it in community. So help us, Lord. And it's amazing to, to consider the, the friendships and, the, and these, uh, the love that, and the warmth that just oozes out of this text that Paul had for these fellow workers. And uh, would you make us more like this? Please help us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in this passage we see that personal side of Paul's ministry, and we're going to see the deep value of these relationships, and we're going to learn three things about Christ-centered friendships. We're going to learn how to be a friend like this, the cost of being a friend like this, and why it's worth it. How to be a friend like this, the cost of being a friend, and how or why it's worth it. The first one, how to be a friend like this. I'm going to see this, and the first point is friendship begins with a shared passion. Look at this. Look at, you see this again and again in this passage. In verse 7, right, Tychicus, he's a, a beloved brother, a minister, and a fellow servant. In verse 9, Onesimus is a beloved brother. Verse 10, Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. And in 4.11, these are all, it says, these are the fellow workers, right? The foundation of these friendships is a shared passion for Jesus and for his kingdom. Shared passion is where friendship and a strong friendship begins. If you ever read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, it's a great study on, on love. And he talks about the difference between eros love and philos love. Okay, and eros is this romantic, sensual kind of love, and philos love is what he calls the, the friendship loves. And he uses this analogy, okay, and he uses the analogy of, of two people on a bench, sitting side by side. And those that have eros love for each other are looking and gazing at one another in each other's eyes. And those that share a philos love, a friendship love, are sitting side by side and they're looking out at a common horizon. A shared passion, a shared goal, that, that, and that's what is drawing them together. Now, I, I, <laughs> I have to share this. So, this is for you single gals out there. Single guys know very little about marriage and about relationships, okay? True story. I, as a, a very profound and sophisticated young Bible college student of 19, quoted this C.S. Lewis text to who would become my future wife at the time was just another single gal in Bible college. And, and we were debating the question of whether guys and girls can just be friends. What do you think? Is it possible? Can you just... Well, I, 
I'm so profound, I quoted C.S. Lewis, and I said, well, it's clear here from C.S. Lewis that eros love is two people sitting side by side, and so that's the kind of love that you build a marriage on, of course, and so, and philos love is, is friendship love, a shared horizon and, and passion, and so, of course, a guy and girl can sit side by side and have a shared passion, but no eros love. Yeah, of course, they can be just friends, right? So, Zoom head, a handful of years, we get married, right, because we were so good friends that we got to know each other. Um, and then someone for our, our wedding gave us a stack of, the, of Tim Keller's series on Ephesians 5 on marriage. Awesome, highly recommended, okay? We're sitting through it as, uh, as newlyweds, and we're listening to it, and he, and he, and he of course, quotes C.S. Lewis, and he says, he says, Philos love is the love that you build a marriage on. <laughs> you sit side by side and you, you have a shared common horizon of a, of a mission in life, of Christ. And as you pursue Christ together, you grow close together. In Eros love, you can't build a marriage on that. That comes and goes. Right? Can you testify you've been married longer than a honeymoon? Right? <laughs> it comes and goes. Right? And so I look at her and I'm like, yeah, I didn't have that right, did I? God works all things for good because it worked out for me. So, friendship is built, and marriage is built on a shared passion. And our deepest friendships form around these deep passions. Think about your closest friends. What do you talk about? What do you do together? Right? As people, we have a lot of interests, a lot of passions, right? Things like sports, music, family, culture, Right? Our, our friendships form around these things. And that's good and right. That's just to be expected. It's how, how we draw near to people. But here's something that, that I've discovered over the years. Is that only a passion for Jesus can run deeper and transcend all the other differences and diversities that we have as people. And that when you have a shared passion for Jesus, friendships grow that, that just tr transcend uh, all the little things and all the, the differences that happen. And no, I'm not going to sing friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. But it's true. It's true. Now, I, I experienced that if you, uh, in our, our community group. We've been meeting at, at Maura's house about a year and a half now, has it been? It's been a little while, and, and we've kind of joked about how we're sure we have the most diverse community group in this church. We have people in almost, not every decade, but I don't know if there's any of us kind of sharing the same decade of age. And we have people that are single, people that are married, people that are empty nesters, people that don't have kids yet, people that have lots of kids. And, and there's just diversity. We come from different cultural backgrounds, but what has brought us together is first this exercise, this exercise of community. I'm committed to meeting with you every week. I'm committed to sharing a, me a meal with you regularly. And as we've done that, we've grown close together. Friendships have grown because we say, let's, let's open our lives to each other and let's open God's word to each other. And we've just journeyed together. And it's, it's built friendships. And and so friendships grow out of shared passions. And, and if you look around and you say, you know, I don't know if I have close friends. 
Or it might be, maybe you're older, and, and, and you say, my, my close friends aren't around anymore. They're with Jesus, or they're, or they're no longer in the city. The way that you build new friends is by becoming a passionate person, by having something worth living for and doing. So that you can then join in with others. So it might be joining a community group. It might be jumping into a ministry, finding a place to serve, or looking out in the city and finding some issue of injustice that you're just like, that just ticks me off. I want to make a difference for good. And then you just get involved. You get your hands dirty, and you'll you'll meet people. You'll find people alongside you. (laughs) If you're single, you might find another passionate person for that same cause or for Jesus that, that you get to right, sit alongside the bench with for the rest of your life. Or it might just be genuine brothers or sisters that you find. We build friendships by shared passions. And so first, let's be passionate people and let's build friendship with each other. The second point, how do you be a friend like this? Friendship is nourished through affirmation. Look at the affectionate way that Paul talks about these fellow workers. These weren't just like, just these simple work relationships. And he wasn't this like strong, prophetic, like, here's your problem. He's not always just calling out people's insufficiencies. Look at this. He says, Tychicus is a beloved and faithful minister. He encourages the hearts of the, of the Colossians in verse 8, right? That's why uh, Onesimus is, uh, or that's why Tychicus is sent that they would be encouraged. Onesimus, who's a slave, we learn about in the, the book of Philemon, is called a beloved and faithful brother. Right? These brothers, it says in verse 11, are a comfort to Paul. Right? Epaphras is faithful in his prayers, and he says in verse 13, he works hard. And then Luke, he says, is beloved. He's just, he's just exuding praise for these people. The tone of his relationships was positive and affirming. There's warmth and affection, and he's specifically calling out evidences of grace that he sees in these fellow workers. Right? He's calling it out. He's calling it out of them. He's encouraging it in them. So there's this book on this. It's awesome. It's by a guy named Sam Crabtree. It's called Practicing Affirmation. Okay, a couple years ago, I'm just totally lay, laying out all the, the, the folly of, of my, my, uh, my role as a husband, but that, that, that's fine, a little confession time. So a couple years ago, my wife read this book. I think she was given to her in a, a retreat or something. Um, she read Practicing Affirmation. affirmation. And, and <laughs> she wanted to talk about it, and it was one of those like, we have to talk about something, conversations that happen in, in marriage that, that for me as a husband can be intimidating. Like, okay, get ready. We're going to talk about something important. Okay, clear the schedule. Make sure you're not too tired. You're going to stay awake. You're not distracted. Everything. Okay, we're going to talk about something important. And we sat down, and she wanted to talk about the tone and the culture of our home. And she, through reading this book, she realized that we had set a culture of correctiveness in our home, right? As, as, as Christian parents, we had certain ideals, right? We, we had right and wrong, 
And we wanted to teach our kids the difference between right and wrong. We wanted to be sure to correct them when they were doing the wrong so they would do the right. But what, what happens? Here's just a little, uh, she, she was joking about this last week or maybe crying about it. I don't remember which one. But, but we realized you're on the dining room table, right? You're teaching manners to your kids. And so, so what do you do? Well, they, they do something rude at the dining room table, you, you correct it. Say, oh, no, no. Okay, don't, don't say that at the table or don't do this. You, and you say, do this instead. So you're correcting your child for their rude behavior at the table. But what you don't realize, if you set a culture of correction in a home, in a family, in a church, or a work environment, you're not just teaching the right thing to do, right? Don't be rude, be polite. You're also teaching them to correct people for being rude. Right? Right? Which, by the way, is really rude to do. Right? You don't want your four-year-old correcting you at the table or, or their six-year-old sister or whatever for being rude at the table because that's rude. And so we began to realize that, that culture and, uh, matters in that excessive correction actually breeds anger and it breeds correctiveness in a home. And so we, she, she said, we, we need to be more affirming. We need to be encouraging. We need to be positive. We need to talk about this. Please read this book. <laughs> so like any good husband, I read the book right away. No. No, no. Actually, a year later, <laughs> I was taking a seminary class, and I, I got the syllabus. And do you know what book the seminary professor assigned to me? <laughs> Practicing affirmation. Apparently, he thought it was really important, too. So, I said, dear, you'll be so happy to hear this. <laughs> I'm going to read the book. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. So I read the book, and I came back to her. I said, this is awesome. We so need this in our home. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dear. <laughs> and so, affirmation. How do we practice it? How do we speak it? How do we do this? So I'm going to share with you, not because I'm an expert, but I learned some things from this book, and so we're going to talk about it. It says, first, a definition. Essentially, biblical affirmation commends or complements the character of God that we see reflected in a person. So affirmation actually glorifies God because I'm not just saying, oh, you look cute in that dress. That could be a fine thing to say. Guys, say that to your wives. That's important. But, but it goes deeper. Biblical affirmation sees the character of God and glorifies God when that character is reflected in other people. For example, when I affirm my children for doing their schoolwork well. Or I praise them for apologizing to their sibling when they hurt their feelings. I'm affirming a, the ref, and how they're reflecting, right? The diligence and faithfulness of Christ and the humility of Christ. These are characteristics that I'm affirming in them. So, I'm going to walk through a few characteristics that... Uh, this guy Sam Crabtree discusses in his, in his book of the power of affirmation and how it builds life and joy in relationships. First, he says, affirming others earns us the right standing from which to make suggestions 
it gains us a hearing. Now, if that's the only reason you're, you're commending someone, right, I've got to say something nice so that I can really tell them what they need to hear. You know what? They're not going to hear the nice things you're saying. They're not going to believe them. But it does. It builds that, that hearing. Second, affirmation lifts morale in the home, office, or anywhere. Just in general, if there's a positive tone of speaking well of one another, everyone is happier. Everyone's more excited. There's more morale. Affirmation energizes people. It not only lifts their spirits, but motivates them to action. Right? It's, it's a simple principle. Right? If, if, if you start working out, right, I'm going to get in shape. What encourages you more? Right? Seeing the, the pot belly or the, the, the boniness and the weakness, or you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm making progress. It's the progress. That's what encourages you to keep going, not I suck. I, I'm lame. I, I'm weak, right? No. We speak affirmation to people because we're encouraged and motivated by progress. Affirmation of others makes us easier to live with. Right? You don't want to be an or- ordinary person <laughs> that's always prodding people and correcting people. We want to, we want to be easy to live with, <laughs> especially with our spouses. Striving to affirm others puts us in the practice of looking at them positively. We learn in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love always trusts. It believes. It trusts and believes the best about people. It gets us in the habit of doing that. Affirmation constructively uses time that could have been wasted complaining. Does complaining do anyone any good? It wastes time. It doesn't get things done. Affirmation is a better use of time and energy. Behaviors that are rewarded and celebrated are more likely to be repeated. And finally, when we commend God's image in people, God is glorified, and that's why we were made to glorify God. This is a way we glorify God is by commending God's image we see in people. And a final idea that was radical for us in our home is understanding that there are ratios in the affairs of the heart. The ratio between affirmation and correction really does matter in relationship. It's it's like a checking account. Affirmations are deposits. Corrections are withdrawals. Or you're, you're writing a check against the balance of that account. And if you write too many checks, you don't have enough money in that account, what happens? Your checks bounce. They're no good. Your correction's not received. And you have to to do additional deposits to restore that credit. And perhaps you've experienced that as parents in the lives of your children. Build encouragement and life into their their souls. So a, a simple principle is this. People are influenced by those who praise them. It's just a fact. We're influenced most by those who praise us most because we know that they're on our side, that they believe in us, they want the best for us. There's a, there was some psychologists that studied this in the 1970s, and they, 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 they discovered something they named the magic ratio. Right? They, they had married couples argue about something, and they took notes and observed, and they studied this, this long study, and basically they discovered that there's a magic ratio, and that ratio is five to one. If in a marriage, that if, if there was more correction, 
and more negative interactions and words spoken than positive, they could guarantee and determine with 90% accuracy when a couple would be divorced, if that ratio was more correction than affirmation. And the magic ratio of a healthy marriage, of a long-standing marriage, was five positive interactions, five words of affirmation, right? Positive to every one word of correction. That's the magic ratio that they discovered. What's that ratio like in your home? What's that ratio like in your marriage or with your kids or in our church? Let's be a people that are known by affirmation. Now, some of you, <laughs> right, if, if you value, right, helping people change and grow, which is more how I'm wired, right, I'm like, but, but that just feels like flattery, right? <laughs> that just feels like I'm, I'm just, I'm afraid to say hard words, okay? That's not what we're saying. Look at verse 17. This is the one verse in here where he's like, you know what, I got to call someone out. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Everyone else is called beloved so-and-so, right? Faithful so-and-so, and they're commended for something. This guy, he just says, tell this dude to get his job done. Tell him to fulfill what he's supposed to do. Right? He's calling out his ob- an obligation. And it's gentle. He's not rebuking him, but it's an exhortation. Now, especially when you put it in the open letter to all the churches, you got to know that guy's going to get his job done, right? There's a whole lot of accountability. This, this, this is like a, this letter that's being sent all around to the churches. Everyone knows this dude's got to get his job done. So friendship is nourished by affirmation, but it's not afraid to speak words of exhortation or even correction when necessary. But it understands the ratios of healthy relationship. Okay? So, the second point. That's how, those two were how we can be friends like this. How can we make friends like this? The second point is, what's the cost of being a friend like this? It may not be obvious from looking at these verses, but there's a whole lot of pain beneath the surface, surrounding these relationships, both pain of broken relationships in the past that have been restored, as well as pain that is still to come. Look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. He says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is, is with Paul, right? So he, Paul's in prison, and Mark is with him, and he's encouraging the church to welcome Mark, to welcome him. And he says that Mark has been a comfort to him. Do you realize how significant that is? Do you know the context of that relationship, the story and the background of that relationship? There's something that happened between Paul and Barnabas and Mark, and it's in Acts 15. You don't have to turn there, but I have it up here on the, uh, on the screen. Listen to this. This is as they're beginning their second missionary journey. 
And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, right? He, he leaves under pressure. He's not up for it. He's a weak. He can't keep up with my pace. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Wow. This is an amazing story. Paul and Barnabas, they were tight. Right? If you remember, Barnabas was the one that welcomed Paul in. He was the Saul, right, the persecutor of the church, and he, he, uh, Jesus came, appeared to him, transformed him, but the rest of the church was like, we can't trust this guy. He's an outsider, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he's like, we can trust him, I believe in him, and he brought him in, and he's like, I vouch for this guy. That's just the kind of person Barnabas was. And then here, they come at it, Right? Barnabas is like, give him another chance. Give John Mark another chance. And Paul's like, no, we got work to do. I can't afford having people leave us. And they separate over it. Wow, and imagine the pain. I mean, we kind of got to read between the lines, but imagine, imagine how hurt Mark was by Paul's criticism and by Paul saying, no, you can't come with us again. And imagine how hurt Paul was by Barnabas saying, no, I got to go with my cousin. I got to go with John Mark. I can't leave him alone. But what we see here is that there was reconciliation, right? And most likely, John Mark grew a little bit more, right? He toughened up so he could travel with Paul. And, and probably Paul, maybe he softened a bit. Maybe he, he became a little more patient, a little more gracious, so there's pain beneath the surface in these relationships. And there's, there's some pain in the future. Look at verse uh, 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Do you know that name? It appears one other time in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.10. We learn that Demas, in love with this present world, deserted Paul. Demas... Went away from the Lord. He turned his back on Christ and on Paul. Relationships are painful. Right? I've experienced this just in the last couple years. A dear friend and brother turned his back on Christ, literally became a militant atheist, left his wife for another woman. It's painful. Seeing brothers or sisters leave the Lord, seeing marriages broken, it's painful. Relationships are hard. To love at all is to be vulnerable. You may have heard this, these words from C.S. Lewis, but I believe he, he cuts to the heart of this. He says this in that same book, Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. It's a hard word, but it's a true word. Any kind of true loving friendship will require suffering. That's the cost of friendship. And many of us have been wounded, right? And so we're afraid. We're afraid of being judged or rejected if we're vulnerable, if we're open, if we talk about our weaknesses. We're afraid of being misunderstood. We're afraid of being abandoned and losing the friend that we love. Or, I'm only 37, but as I look back, I, I realize the last couple years, you can make new friends, but you can't make old friends. And I had a, a dear friend who pursued me. I didn't, I didn't know how to make friends. I wasn't any good at it as just kind of an introvert, independent-minded person. And I had a friend that just pursued me, that would just call me up just to talk. Like, guys don't usually do that. We're not good at that. But I had a friend, a guy, that just called me up and talked and talked and talked. And one day, he called me and talked, and he said, God heard my prayer. I, I, I asked him to break me and to bring me just to him and to do whatever it would take. And, and I got diagnosed with leukemia. God answered my prayer. And I journeyed with my friend through leukemia, through being healed, like, seemingly miraculously, and, and having it go in remission, and then having it go, come back with vengeance, and, and having him go to be with Jesus to leave his young wife and two young daughters. And another friend who was in my wedding party who, who took a nap and never woke up. And if you're older, you, you've been through that, and you can't make old friends again. <laughs> but we can make new friends, and... And it's worth it. It's worth the cost. It's worth the, the vulnerability. Because these are real fears, real fears of being hurt. They might happen. But what Lewis is saying is that that's just a part of love, right? the suffering of love. And we can either love and suffer, or we can harden our hearts and let them grow cold and bitter. Right? We know, though, that Jesus... Right? Jesus opened his heart. Right? Jesus, Jesus faced the, the pain and the vulnerability. And he says to us, in the midst of that, you're not alone. He just says, I know what it's like. I've been hurt. I've been rejected. Come to me. You don't have to bear those fears alone. It's worth the cost. The final point, why it's worth the risk. And just two points. And we'll end here. Genuine friendships sustain us through suffering. Look in verse 7 through 9 as he talks about the people that are with him. Where is Paul? Where is he writing from? Right? He's writing from prison. <laughs> One of his friends that he's with is a fellow prisoner. He's like, I got this other guy. He's locked up with me for sharing Christ. 
right? He's writing in chains. We see here, he has these friends in the midst of suffering, right? We, (laughs) in our good days, right, when things are going well, we tend to think we can do it on our own, don't we? We tend to think that that we can we can get through it without other people. Right? But what we see here in Paul is that he's sharing his life. Look at that. He says, he says, I want you to know, I don't want you just to get this pastoral letter from me, like I'm this preacher from a distance delivering God's word down from the mountain to you. He says, Look, I'm in verse 8, I, I'm, I'm sending these people that you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. And then at the end of verse 9, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. He wants them to know the specifics of how they're doing. Or you read in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, he says that he's affectionately desirous of the people in the church. And he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our very lives, because you were dear to us. And you see that, that Paul opened his life to people. He didn't minister from a distance. He, he was in these relationships. He, he went deep with people. And he shared the good and the bad. And so I don't know if you're in that, that happy, fine, strong place where things are going right. And you don't feel like you need other people. But what, what we see here is, is it's not always going to be like that, Right? And, and there will come times when you need an old friend. You need a close friend to call. And that's not the, when you need them is not when you get to make them, right? They have to already be friends. They have to already be people that you trust, that you've been vulnerable with. So I want to encourage us, all of us, to make friends, even when you don't feel like you need other people. Because the day will come when you do. And actually that day is probably already here. If you read your Bible and you realize, right, the church is a gym. We need each other to grow together. So don't suffer alone. Press into community. Find a community group. Find a place to serve. We need each other because we need people to sustain us through suffering. And then the final point of why this is worth the risk Friendship and vulnerability because Jesus has suffered in our place so that we can enjoy all the blessings of friendship without the fear of getting hurt. Hear me out here. We can do this because we have been loved by Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of the vulnerability of getting hurt because we know that we're loved and accepted by Him as we are. And He he knows us through and through, right? He knows our dirty little secret. He knows our brokenness, and he has not rejected us. And so we don't ultimately need to be afraid of other people rejecting us. Jesus is our healer, right? And any pain that we experience in the path of love is simply the pain of bearing our cross, right? He says, if you're going to come after me, you're going to bear your cross and follow me. Right? What was his cross? Right? And what led him there? It was love. And so the, the pain of love and relationships and vulnerability is a part of the cross of following Jesus, and we don't bear it alone. He bears it 
with us. And we've experienced God's grace in our life. We've heard that His word to us is not judgment, right? But it's affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? I love you. I delight in you. And because we've experienced that in our relationship with God, we can create a culture of affirmation in our relationships. And guess what? If you're an affirming person, people will want to be with you. (laughs) They will want to be your friend. I like being with her, right? She's so encouraging, and it's genuine because we've received that encouragement from God. And then finally, that greatness of God's mission. We, uh, we said friendships grow around passions, right? God has given us a great mission, right? He said, go, go out and make disciples of all nations, right? Or he, he said to God's people in, in uh, Jeremiah 29, right? Go and seek the welfare of the city. Seek the peace and shalom of the city. Make a difference in the world, And when that is our focus, we get our eyes off ourselves and we join in with others in that exciting work of bringing redemption to all creation. There's work to do. There's work to do. And so we can pursue these relationships and it's worth it because Jesus has first paved the way. And so in closing, I want to invite us to communion. If you have put your trust in Christ tables for you, and we get to, as we do this, remember that we are united to Christ through his death, through his resurrection. He invites us to the table to feast with him. It's a foretaste of what is to come. It's a communion with him, but it's also a communion with one another, that we're God's family, that we're in this together. And so I encourage you to take the meal with with family, with friends, or with people that could become your friends. And let's take communion. Let's remember his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. If, if there's someone who's older that you, you think might have a hard time getting the elements, there's plates there, you can help bring it to them. Let's celebrate what he's done together. And let's press into friendship. Um, because he, Jesus has called us friends. He says, greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. He's done that for us. Let's pray. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.